are entering the Freedom Hut. Thoughts on the Comey interview from over the weekend, of course. We'll discuss those, my friends. Also, the state of California is balking at sending National Guard to help out on the border. We'll get into that. An update on the aftermath of airstrikes in Syria. And, of course, in the third hour, we'll talk about what wokeness is doing to your favorite TV shows and movies. That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, my friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. I'm coming to you live from California. I'm visiting out here in Los Angeles for uh, for a few days this week. Uh, very much enjoying my time out here. We have a lot to get to. Uh, th- this Comey thing was, you know, I I promise that I'm not going to spend too much time this week talking talking about Comey or or Sancta Comey, as I like to call him, uh, because the sanctimony with this guy is. It is a tornado of sanctimony every time he appears on TV. Uh, this interview was was hard to take and in many ways hard to watch. But I feel like I've known Comey's in my day. I think a lot of us have. And if you, if you understand who this guy is, then everything starts to make sense. If you really put into context who this individual, who he reminds you of, who he operates like in your own life, you'd be like, yeah, I've known some, I've known some Comey's in my day. Um, and just as I, as I mentioned before, we've got some, some more stuff on Syria to talk about. Also, California and the uh, National Guard going to the border. That's, that's going to be an interesting piece as well. Uh, so here's, here's what I got for you on the whole Comey thing. Went on for a long time. I went back today and, and read through the transcript of it, too. And not, not a lot of news breaking in this. But if you look between the lines, if you read between the lines a bit, you find that is a very problematic figure, this, uh, this Mr. Comey fellow, and has at various points in his career taken actions and made decisions that a non-Comey would probably be ruined for. I mean, this guy, he, he's a, a savvy political infighter, make no mistake about it. You know, he is the Boy Scout who will stab you in the back. So you think, oh, well, this guy, you know, anyone can trust him. Then all of a sudden, ah, oh, what's that in my back? What happened? You didn't see it coming because it came from Comey. I want to break down though some of his, and, and this is who he is, right? That's what his, the, the vibe, the feeling you get about this guy. You know, I, I, I've told some of my friends recently that he's the one who, you know, if you weren't late for, if, if you weren't caught by the dean when you were late for school, he was the one who would just like give the dean a heads up that you were late. You know, is he right yeah, I mean, technically, maybe, but is it helpful? Is is that a, is that the cool thing to do? Is that the right move? Is that showing good judgment? No, I don't think the world's a better place because you didn't get away with being ten minutes late to first period. You know, that's who Comey is. He's he's America's hall monitor. He's not somebody that I I have a lot of admiration or or respect for, and that's putting it mildly. Not someone that I can honestly stomach spending too much time reading about or or uh, analyzing, but we'll do some of it today. Um, he also reminds me of some of the government employees I knew who were really quick to point out if anyone had, uh, you know, violated even the most arcane regulation. 
you know, even the most minute in the NYPD, they had the patrol guide, this big, thick guide. And you, you always knew, and this was told to me by different sergeants on, on the force that I worked with in my time there. You know, you knew if somebody was on your, on your side or not based on how deep in the weeds they'd go in the patrol guide to find something to get you on, to jam you up. I remember a guy telling me that, you know, when he worked in the, the equivalent of the Internal Affairs Bureau, there were the guys who, and I think in NYPD now, I even forget, I think they call it a investigations or whatever, but in the, it's, it's, the, it's what in the movies they'd have, you know, we're from Internal Affairs and all the, all the good guy cops who play by their own set of rules are super hostile to them. That's not how it works out in real life. Internal Affairs in real life, everyone goes, oh, yes, sir, what do you need? Um, but there were the guys who would, as part of the internal affairs uh, component, they would uh, get you on having your addresses of the NYPD. If your address changed and you didn't officially update it on your driver's license, they make a big deal of that. Does anyone really care? Are you not an effective law enforcement officer because the records have you at the wrong address or something if you move? Because people move in New York all the time because the rents are so expensive and you know, you got really no choice. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, those, those are the differences between the, the people that you can count on, uh, and the people that you can't, right. Those who would go to the depths of, of the patrol guy to find a way to get you. And that's who Comey is, except for himself. Very clear about that in this interview as well. He'll, he'll find a way to justify sending anyone else down the river, throwing someone else under the bus. But he was always just acting from the most pure motives. He was always the guy who, when he was breaking the rules, he was doing it actually for the best possible intentions. That's what he was really all about. So with that here, let's get into some of the specifics from his, his interview. Like, for example, where he talked about the, the leak of information that uh, he had. Comey leaked some stuff. Play clip one. President's tweeted innumerable times calling you a leaker. Well, what's your response to President Trump? Look, it's true. I mean, I'm the one who testified about it. That's how people know about it. I gave that unclassified memo to my friend and asked him to give it to a reporter. That is entirely appropriate. Why not do it yourself? Why not do it openly, transparently? For one very practical reason. At the end of my driveway was a horde of media. And my thought was, if I give it to one reporter then what's my answer to all the others about why I won't answer their questions? That's not an answer. That, that doesn't cut it, right? Because I wanted to be fair. This is what I mean by, you know, he's the guy who the rules really apply to everyone else, but not really to him. But he's, he's holier than thou, but he gives himself an indulgence when necessary. I had to have a cutout, give it to the paper because I didn't want to seem unfair. Well, then your cutout is the guy who's being unfair, but you're the one who empowered him. So how does that make any difference? The answer is, of course, it doesn't. He's also stating that the memo is unclassified. Well, according to Chuck Grassley in the Senate, that's not true. And beyond that, even if it's unclassified, the fact of the matter is that he was using his access as the FBI director to wage a personal war against the president to indulge a personal vendetta against the person who he answered to in the executive chain of command. There's this weird, there's this weird theory that the media has been running around with that like the DOJ and the FBI are, are really their own branch of government. And I think that what's been 
unearthed in all of this in part is that they think of themselves as their own branch at the very top level, at least. I mean, not the rank and file, but you know, FBI director, attorney general. They think that they are in a separate category of government. They're not just an, another executive branch employee. And I think that that led to a, tr- a very troubling and, and obvious hubris with people like James Comey. I mean, this guy really thinks that he's just got a better way all the time. And when he breaks the rules, it's because he knows the rules so very well. When he does something that's wrong, it's because, oh, it's just so right. I mean, he's really kind of a kind of kind of wild when you think about it. Um, but so he admitted that he leaks he leaked stuff and uh, he says it's unclassified. Well, we'll see. We'll see. There were other parts of the interview, I think, where we got a, a much better sense even of how self-serving all of his justifications really are. Uh, one of the parts of it that made me the, the most uh, annoyed, because he's not the only one who's done this. You've had this from former CIA director Brennan as well, but that they'll suggest that, like, maybe Russia's got something on Trump still. Maybe they've got something on and given their level of access to government information, including all kinds of uh, sensitive collection platforms that are out there and investigations for the FBI side of things, too, on national security related matters, the suggestion when you've just left that role that there may be something that is compromising the president of the United States is wildly irresponsible. It just is. People can sit around and say, oh, no, you know, Comey, he's he's great and. He's doing his best, and he just wants to serve his country. And I see this, and I say to myself, uh, he really is acting like a, a wounded uh, a wounded and aggrieved high school kid here who gets to just lash out and cause problems for the country because he has problems with how he was fired. And I would know, it's not like he was fired and, and it was, you know, he's out on his butt on the street and he can't make a living, you know, can't, can't earn a dollar. The guy had plenty of ways that he used to work. He doesn't talk about this very much. I've brought it up here on the show. He worked at one of the biggest hedge funds in the world as an advisor for a while. I've told you in part why I think that decision was made. It's because he was friends with Preet Bharara, who was making a name for himself as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York by going after very prominent hedge funds on insider trading with insider trading probes and charges in some cases. So it's a, it's a good insurance policy to have a guy on the payroll who could get on the phone or maybe meet for lunch with the U.S. attorney and be like, hey, my guys are good, you know. That's all you have to say, by the way. Nothing technically illegal about that, right? If you're friends with the U.S. attorney and he says, you know, hey, how are things going at that place? He goes, oh, yeah, my guys are all, they're all good. They don't do anything bad. There's nothing illegal about that. And the U.S. attorney gets the message without having to get the message. Maybe he wants to be in on the... Uh, going to be an advisor to a major hedge fund later, wants to be on the board of some companies. You know, or in the case of Pre Barrar, wants to run over to CNN and be a, a CNN analyst right away. And a part, join the hashtag resistance, which is what he has done. Um, but this, this interview went on. It was a full hour, went on for a long time. And uh, uh, Stephanopoulos, who I, I have to say, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but Stephanopoulos is one of the great mysteries to me. I don't understand how he has the job that he has. I, I, I could not be, I mean, yeah, he's a, a Clinton operative. He knows a lot of the Clinton people. And, and I, I get that there are connections. But the fact that they think they have to pay this guy $100 million to to ask a lot of questions that anyone would ask. And by the way, to not ask some questions that should have been asked. And what were some of those? 
I would know. I'll get into all that and more. I want to hear from all you folks if you would like to chat with me. I'm out here in California, so it's always nice to hear from the team when I'm on the road. Uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900 bucks. So we're going to get into a little more because there's some very important stories that intersect with this Comey interview, right? So it's not just me sitting here making fun of him for being a lanky weirdo with no self-awareness, although that's a part of it too. Uh, there are some some stories that we get a little additional insight on or information that, uh, well, a whole bunch of different stories that, that came into this interview. So we'll do some of that this hour. Then I'll talk to you about the uh, National Guard situation with California and the border, uh, how Trump's actually doing versus how the media pretends he's doing with the country, with the economy. Uh, follow up on the serious strikes. I'm still um, skeptical of uh, how useful or, or important they were in the grand scheme of things. And the third hour, some random topics. I think I'll be talking about sugar, wokeness, and how it affects the way that we. And you're like, sugar? That's a topic? Oh, it is on this show. Uh, and then there's one other thing that I was hoping to talk to you about in the third hour, and I'm totally blanking what it is now. But it's going to be amazing. That much I can promise you. All right, team, hitting a quick break. We'll be right back. This is a man without courage. He didn't have courage to tell the president to his face he was wrong. Instead, he leaked it. He didn't have courage to walk out of the meeting, which he said was an improper meeting. When he was in the presence of the president, he showed no courage. Look, I think one of the reasons that the president talks to me from time to time is I tell him exactly what I think at every point in time. I told Obama what I thought. I told Clinton what I thought. If you're the head of the FBI, you've got to look the president in the eye and you have to say, Mr. President, you're wrong. I agree with the Dersh. I've been saying a lot lately, but it's true. Comey is is posing as some kind of moral hero all the time. But in reality, he's really kind of a self-serving snake. Why not? Why did he have to get fired? Let's just start with let's start with some of these very basic questions. Why did he have to get fired? Why couldn't he uh, resign? If Trump is, as he says, such a stain on government and the FBI and all the other all the other really, uh, really terrible stuff that uh, Comey says about the current president of the United States, why do you have to get pushed out? Wouldn't it seem like a pretty straightforward thing to say, oh, hold on a second. Um, if he was so bad, then I think it's fair to say that you should have known he was so bad, and the way for a public official to stand on principle is not to try to protect his or her job and, and uh, perks and prerogative, but actually to say, hold on, I'm, I'm going to say this is wrong now and have an impact by resigning now. You know, I just I thought it was um, uh, very telling that in all this talk with Comey, by the way, it, it never comes across that this is a guy who, when it might go against his interests, is brave. Yeah, when it might go against his interests, will speak truth to, to power. Uh, and there were so many things he said that were also just complete and utter crap. I mean, going into the transcript here for a second, uh, he said, uh, well, for a bunch of reasons, it's sort of built over the course of the investigation. First of all, we had the problem that President Obama had twice publicly basically said there was no there there. In an interview with Fox, on Fox, in an interview on 60 Minutes, I think both times he said that. George Stephanopoulos, and he said, so that's his Justice Department. Stephanopoulos says, did that surprise you? It really did surprise me. He's a very smart man and a lawyer. 
And so it surprised me. He shouldn't have done it. It was inappropriate. So Obama saying that there was no there there in the Hillary investigation is inappropriate. Did Comey ever stop to think that maybe it's more than inappropriate? Uh, Maybe it was effectively a command given to Loretta Lynch and whoever else was at DOJ involved in this to make sure that this happened that way. You know, if you think about it in another context, if somebody went on TV, let's say the the CEO of a company, and, you know, he was like, well, everybody should sell all of my uh, my top company officers. They should all sell their stock. And they did that before there was going to be some really bad news. Uh, that would be a problem, right? People would say, well, I mean, you know, it's uh, – the, the the lead guy is setting a tone here that's really bad. And by the way, that I mean, if it's inside information or something, somebody could go to prison for that. But it would be considered a signal. It doesn't matter if he says it's them individual. If he's like, yeah, if, I mean, look, if I held stock, I'd sell it right now. That's all you need. All, all, the, all the necessary folks who know what's going on, they would take that as, oh, okay. Well, the guy at the top is saying, you know, sell. So we got to sell. And when the guy at the top, in this case, Obama, says there's no there there, guess what? Who, who at the DOJ, let, let, let's like walk this back for a second. Who at the DOJ is going to say, you know what? Obama just told the whole country that Hillary's email investigation is like an, is a nothing burger. But uh, I would like to make it a, some, a something burger with cheese. I would like to add some special sauce and grilled onions to the something burger that I'm going to make of Hillary's email investigation. I don't think anyone's going to do that. Uh, we could all agree, right? I'm not, I'm not pushing too far here. I'm not going off into Never Never Land. There is no one at the DOJ who, after Obama had publicly said there's nothing going on there, was going to say otherwise. Full stop. Your life would have been made miserable. Oh, you would have. Can you imagine? The DOJ, it doesn't matter what level you are, all of a sudden you're going to get all of your, com- all your communications audited. Your family you know, is going to have people parked outside their house. You know, reporters are going to be all over you. The whole thing. So what did Comey do? You know, he goes along to get along. Meanwhile, he's the last honest cop in America, even though he was never actually a cop. You know what I mean? He he acts like he was Mr. FBI G-Man kicking indoors. That was also not something he was ever doing. Comey is a politically connected lawyer. And that's it. And that's what came across in that interview. We got a lot more. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. A couple years back, you gave a speech saying, if we fall in love with our own virtue, we can go sideways. At any point over the last two years, did you fall prey to that? Did you fall in love with your own virtue? I don't think so, but I worried about it constantly. And the guardrail for that, because that's a big worry I have about myself, was to surround myself with people who will hit that hit at the certainty hit at the pride to make sure i've thought about things well i'm going to teach i'm going to travel around and speak about leadership but i want to offer them a vision of here's what it should look like values matter this president does not reflect the values of this country <laughs> Comey. he i don't know if you call this he's too virtuous to fall in love with his own virtue that was his answer and that is how he feels about it, by the way. I mean, Comey can't hear you over the sound of how awesome he is. That's what he's trying to tell you. Whew. This guy's a real piece of work. It really is. Uh, 
that's not a problem that normal people have, by the way, falling in love with how, how virtuous they are. Uh, and I think somebody, I would tell you this, and I, I have friends who are uh, on the prosecutorial side, federal prosecutors, uh, some people who are very, actually very close friends of mine are prosecutors. And, uh, and they struggle with this. You know, they struggle with what's, what's fair, what's just. And not just, well, that's what the rules are. The rules are the rules. Put that person away for 20 years. The rules are the rules. You know, because they know that the rules are subject to interpretation. There are gray areas. Some people get the benefit of the doubt. Some people, uh, what I had, a, I had a Jesuit used to say, the doubt of the benefit. Is that a thing? I don't know if that's a thing or not. The doubt of the benefit. Um, but you know what, what we're going for with that. And, uh, you know, Comey is reflective of a system that I think very obviously has been corrupted. Uh, it's been corrupted in some very serious ways. I was asked earlier today, well, you know, what do you think about, this was by a, a friend out here in California, what do you think about the swamp? And I said, well, let's just take a step back for a moment. When you have had the intense politicization of academia, college campuses, colleges across the country and universities, of law schools, of graduate schools, and of the media, entertainment media more so than, than uh, anything else, but news media too. Although, I don't know, maybe they're neck and neck. I mean, they're both 90 plus percent, 95% liberal. Uh, but when you've had that happen, and then you have certain career tracks within the federal government that put uh, certain schools and uh, background and, and educational achievement of one kind or another, you know, elevate that. Yeah, th- then it really matters. When law schools are all social justice warrior factories, and most of them have become that now, and most of these advanced degree programs that aren't specifically related to a, uh, a real discipline, right? I mean, if you're getting a, a master's or a PhD in applied mathematics, I, I think that that's probably not going to be too politicized. But with the rest of them, because they're so left-wing, that matters. That's why you have all these State Department people and FBI people, because they go to these left-wing, and the best schools, I'll just say it, the most elite, the most uh, hard to get into. They're not nearly as elite as they think they are because of all the different uh, diversity demands and social justice warrior initiatives that are on hand at any given time. But, you know, they're the best of what we got in terms of the uh, elitism of their admissions. And, yeah, that means that now you're going to have a lot of, you know, Sally Yates hates Trump. McCabe hates Trump. You know, uh, Comey obviously hates Trump. You go down the line, you know, Brennan hates Trump. Clapper hates Trump. What, what do all these people, how is it possible that we can't have one person from the prior administration that's in a supposedly non-political role who is, in fact, non-political? Right. You have all these very senior government officials who are, you know, they, they just want to be right on the front lines of opposition to, uh, to Trump and, and his agenda. And it, it can't be a coincidence. There's something bigger going on here. And I, I think this is a big part of, of what the swamp really is. And I think that Comey is an example of exactly how uh, out of control much of this is. I mean, Comey, somebody who as I was saying, has made decisions at key points in his career that show that he's a political player. And some of the decisions that he made had a real impact on history, and I think he relished, he pretends in this interview with Stephanopoulos 
to dread it, to have all of this on the one hand, on the other. And you know, he, he poses as uh, someone who you know, is, is losing sleep over this all the time. And I, I don't even think that it's a case where you could say that, you know, Comey is like uh, the, the, the punchiest pilot of all this. You know, well, you know, whatever, the, whatever I'm supposed to do, whatever the people want here. No, he had an agenda the whole time. He had an agenda the whole time. And it was whatever's going to make him look the best. Whatever would uh, allow him to be the, the best Comeyist that he could be. Very important part of the, there's so much in the interview. He touches on the Hillary email investigation, the tarmac, Loretta Lynch, and all that. Um, a few things that I wanted to get to, because I, I could talk about this at length and not really hit on some very meaty points that we need to, that we need to do. Um, and, and I'm trying to avoid, although and before we close this out, I might have to get into some of the, the really petty childish stuff. So on the one hand, you've got this guy who's like, you know, I'm, I'm the conscience of America. I'm going to go around and give speeches on ethics and leadership. And it's all about the truth and being more than just somebody who's out for the self and all this. And then he's like, but I didn't like the shoes the president was wearing. But then, you know, I, I thought that the president is not as handsome as he thinks he is. You know, stuff like that. You're just, his hands aren't that big. His hair's kind of weird. Why do that? unless you can't help yourself because you're a huge phony, which is, you know, does he call him phony Comey? Because he probably should. I know he's been great lion Comey and grandstanding Comey. I think phony Comey is better, better. Although I, I do like my formulation of sancta Comey. Uh, he is very sancta Comeyous. Um, but here's the, uh, the part of it that I, some of the parts of it that I thought were particularly worthwhile from the, and I won't make you sit through and listen to too much of his, of the clips. I'm sure a lot of you watch this, but if we're, if we're analyzing this together, uh, some very worthwhile moments that struck me, like for example, uh, on the, the whole notion of the, the tarmac meeting and how that came about. Uh, the truth is that th- he's never had a real, uh, a really worthwhile explanation for this. He wrote quote, I don't know what they talked about. This is for remember Loretta Lynch is having a personal meeting with, Bill Clinton, while his wife is under FBI investigation for actually breaking federal laws, which is what she did. She broke the law. They didn't charge her, but she broke the law. Okay. And any person who looks at this realizes this stinks to high heaven. And not only that, but Comey excuses this while simultaneously using it as the justification for being the one who steps in front of the American people and says there should be no charge against Hillary. So it's not that bad, the tarmac meeting, he will say, but also, oh, I had to step in front and give that whole speech about the extreme carelessness. Right. And when when Stephanopoulos asked him uh, about the tarmac meeting, he said, I don't know what they talked about. I credit Loretta Lynch because I think she's an honest person saying we talked about grandchildren and other things. I find it hard to believe that Bill Clinton would have tried to obstruct justice by walking across the tarmac in front of a bunch of FBI agents. Okay. Uh, here's another interpretation of this, one that I think is much more in line with how the Clintons approach everything. Of course they thought that they could do this. Hillary was able to get away with the email thing. Hillary was... It, it, there, there's never been a real investigation into the Clinton Foundation, despite what is so blatantly and obviously a massive 
influence peddling scheme where the sitting secretary of state was effectively selling influence to her foundation on the premise that it would turn into influence with the next president of the United States. And, you know, the husband taking enormous fees to give speeches while his wife is secretary of state from foreign governments, my friends. And somehow this is not a big thing. You know, they can go in there and seize Michael Cohen, the personal lawyer for President Trump, seize his attorney-client privileged documents, but we've never really had anyone look long and hard at the Clinton Foundation. The reason that Loretta Lynch was so reckless about meeting with Bill Clinton on the tarmac is because they figured we're at the top of this system. We run the swamp. Nothing's going to happen to us. So, of course, we can do this. It's it's a similar thinking to with with Putin and the way that he uses uh, or his, you know, his people will use Novichok or uh, polonium to poison someone. You might say to yourself, well, why would you use a chemical weapon that is so obviously going to be tied back to Russia? That's the point, because he can. What are we going to do? We're going to throw more sanctions on him. Ooh, Putin's really scared, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. Why do it? Because you can. Why would Loretta Lynch meet with Bill Clinton? Because they wanted to talk about whatever they were talking about. I think quite clearly she probably gave him a very uh, vaguely worded but clear enough for him to understand, nah, that don't worry, we got this covered. You know, Hillary's going to be fine. And that's all that was needed. You know? Because think about the risks of what they're doing. If they really thought they'd get in trouble, how stupid can you be? No, they know that they're above the system. They know that they're above the law, and that's why. Remember, Loretta Lynch never even recused herself, okay? You've got Jeff Sessions, who's just trying to be a good, honorable guy, who pulls himself out of the bar fight that is the Russia collusion investigation because he thinks that's the right thing to do. Loretta Lynch is right in the middle of the bar fight over Hillary Clinton's email investigation and didn't even even start to, didn't stop to think for a second, oh, yeah, I I should recuse myself from this. This looks dirty. This looks bad. Uh, another thing in all this, and because look, they covered a lot of ground. It was a long interview, right? I think like 10 million people watch it. More people watch Stormy Daniels, though. I'm just saying. More interest in Stormy Daniels' Trump thing than there was in, I don't know, it's salacious. and It's a word that's gotten a lot of use over the last year. We should come up with something else, maybe scurrilous, you know, I don't know. There, there needs to be some other, the salacious dossier, the salacious allegations against Trump. There's got to be something else. Uh, dossier, another word that now, uh, a dossier was a thing, and now if you say the dossier, everyone knows what you're talking about. But on the notion of, uh, or on the issue of classified information, uh, this was an important part of all this. James Comey, with this was about the Hillary email stuff. Uh, reason number two, I have to talk about it very carefully. Uh, classified information came into the possession of the U.S. intelligence community in the early part of 2016. It indicated there was material out there that raised the question of whether Loretta Lynch was controlling me and the FBI and keeping the Clinton campaign informed about our investigation. Now, I don't believe that, and I don't believe that's true, but there was material that I knew someday when it's declassified, and I thought it would be decades in the future, would cause historians to wonder, hmm, was there some strange business going on there? Was Loretta Lynch somehow carrying water for the campaign and controlling what the FBI did? This is a massive, steamy pile of you-know-what. I mean, this is just atrocious. This is so beyond what anyone could reasonably be expected to believe. James Comey is saying here, I can't tell you about it. can't give you any specifics. 
and it wouldn't come out for decades. But, you know, I'm a guy who really worries about his legacy. But I'm not in love with my own virtue because I'm too virtuous to be in love with my virtue. But let me just say that I was I was worried about those historians in decades from now when they're thinking about building a life-size statue of Comey at 12 feet tall. And when they're worried about what has happened in the past, they might look at this and say, well, there was this now declassified information that Comey says is not credible, but that made them think that maybe uh, Loretta Lynch was involved in investigating. I mean, this is this is just this is just nonsense. It's not real. What does this even mean? He's worried about what historians are going to think in a few decades. Who thinks that way? Who the who the heck is going to care in a few decades? What what is he's really worried? But this is. I don't know if it's more that he's delusional about the legacy of Comey or that he really thinks that uh, he can just get away with making something up. It's like, sorry, it's classified. Can't tell you about it, which I guess he he does think he can do that. But that's just a non-factor in, in all of this. Um, and and ultimately, his his whole justification for the decision they came to on the Hillary emails, it's just garbage. And not letting, if, if Loretta Lynch couldn't be the one to make the statement to the American people, why couldn't her number two? It had to come from the FBI. That's a total, that's a Comey decision. That is, it was the ultimate grandstander move. The ultimate grandstander move. And you could say, well, Buck, why would he later on talk about the Wiener investigation? Look, I didn't make up the name. All right. That's what else, what else am I going to call it? Don't, don't look at me. The Wiener, they're investigating Wiener. Get your mind out of the gutter. Um, but what are they going to do? They're going to suppress that information? Take the active step of not letting the public know that they're looking into Wiener's, uh, oh gosh, we- looking in Wiener's server? So, oh, I got to run a break. All right, we'll be right back. Sorry. It was the first time you met Donald Trump. What was your impression? He had impressively coiffed hair that looks to be all his. I confess I stared at it pretty closely. And my reaction was, must take a lot of time in the morning. His tie was too long as it always is. He looked slightly orange up close with small white um, half moons under his eyes, which I assume are from tanning goggles. What does this have to do with anything? Why is a former FBI director talking about the current president of the United States like he's a you know a sixth grade girl? And no offense to sixth grade girls, but come on. Didn't like his hair. Looks like he uses a tanning bed. Ugh, guy's an embarrassment. Grayson in uh, Mesa, Arizona. What are you thinking, my friend? Fields high, Buck. Great to Fields talk high. against our OSS here. Hey, um, you know, I, I just picked up here uh, Brett Hume with uh, Brett Baer this afternoon uh, on Fox. Um, and, and he was uh, pointing out uh, a lot of things that were left out, the questionable things that were uh, cut out, key questions that Stephanopoulos was asking. That We've only got about 40 through. seconds, my friend, so what are some of them? Well, uh, the questions that uh, regarding uh, Comey, um, uh, him taking on and assuming uh, roles uh, that are delegated to like the Justice Department where he became instead of his role as the FBI director 
he was uh, became judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah, he he was running the DOJ and the FBI by his by his own decision. Uh, Grayson, appreciate you calling in, man. We got to run into the next uh, block here. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show. My friends, great to have you here. So we, we've gone through a lot of the Comey stuff. I, I want to I wanna move past <laughs> want to move past Comey Palooza. I know some are like, no, Buck. Buck, we've got a fever, and the only prescription is more Comey. Not true, I know. You, you've had enough, probably, of, of Comey. I've had enough of Comey. I do. I think it's done now too. Meaning, I, it's fading away. It, it, he doesn't have staying power. You know, he has all the charm of a uh, of a a, re, a recently divorced IRS auditor who's just looking to looking to rage at the world. You know what I mean? It, it, it's not good. It's not good. He's he's in a rough space. He's he's not a guy that people really are going to want to have around all that much. And I haven't even gotten. Into, see, it just happens. I was going to start making fun of his like Zen Lake tweets that he puts out. And also I saw something recently. I thought it must be Photoshop where he's like doing a jumping jack or something. And he's like, yay, call me. Anyway, we're moving on from that though. But it's imp- all that stuff is important. His, his justifications for what he did are not compelling. Um, he holds other people to a very extreme standard within the law, uh, but holds himself to whatever standard he comes up with. Um, and he is... Very, very sanctimonious. But there's some real stuff that's also happening right now that has to do with the law and how people are treated within the context of the law, whether it is it is fair or not to them. Uh, and Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, has had his stuff uh, seized, as you know, we've talked about it here. And just today, a judge has uh, said that there, well, the, a judge has denied the temporary restraining order that Cohen has asked for with regard to all of his, um, all of his everything, really. I mean, they seized all of his stuff. Right? Imagine someone came into your home, not just someone. Imagine the FBI came in and took all of your documents, your phones, your computers, and was able to go through everything, and uh, without any prohibitions on what could be seen. Now you're gonna. I, I understand what the what the left and the Democrats, the anti-Trump folks, they say here is, oh no, don't worry. They're going to bring in a taint team, which is what it is called, and they will uh, try to separate out what is privilege from what is not. Well, here's the thing. Once they already have it, that doesn't really feel like, that doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. Once the FBI or once the people from the Department of Justice, once federal prosecutors have access to this information, guess what? The tie is going to go to the prosecutor. If it's close to not being privileged, guess what? It's not privileged. If there's any way they could justify it not being privileged, guess what? That's where it's going to go. And then there's another level, too, of when, uh, you know, think back think back to when you were in school. You're like me. And uh, you were not somebody who really liked math. And there were copies of the textbook that had the answers in the back. And the whole thing was, you know, you're going to, you know, you're you're going to get to the, you're able to check your own work that way. But I, I have to admit, sometimes I was like, well, you know, I got the answer here and 
I'm just kind of, I'm going to kind of make up how I got there and just make sure I've got the answer. That's always the temptation. If prosecutors have all this information handy, now I know people are going to say the taint team is going to separate it out, but the, the taint team, first of all, they work for the, they work for the, the other side. They're for the other team. Uh, people are going to say, oh, they're not going to be, it's going to be independent, independent how. They all know what they're working on. Well, you can tell me these people don't talk? Oh, yeah, sure. You're, you're going to, after all we've seen, all the shenanigans with Loretta Lynch, the tarmac meeting, Hillary, the emails, breaking the Blackberries, using bleach bit to erase the hard drives, uh, and, and no charges there. And uh, you know, after all the stuff we have seen to shake our confidence in the nonpartisan nature of the Department of Justice, now they want us to be like, yeah, I mean, so they got all of Trump's lawyer stuff, but they're going to be really judicious about what they keep, what they don't, right? This is laughable. This is preposterous. And to finish off my math answer analogy, I still have nightmares about being in the middle of math exams that I'm not doing well in. And it's just like a stress to this day. You know, I have like a dream where it's like, no, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I can't do quadratic equations anymore. Uh, but they... Once they have the answers, they can find other ways to get there. Meaning once they have the information, they'll find another way to get it, not through the process of what the FBI just seized. You know, and you could say, well, Buck, you know, if, if Cohen's done anything shady, uh, then he deserves whatever he gets. And to that, I just respond, you know, you don't know anyone who hasn't done anything shady. If you're doing stuff and if the government wants to wants to make an example of you, they'll find a way to make it look like you're shady. You know, one of the things that I used to talk about in the earlier days of the Buck Sexton show, one of the, uh, the, the favorite topics that I would hit that I felt like never got enough attention. It's one of my mantras here, right? I like to do things that I think are really important, but other people are focused on other stuff. Uh, it was over-criminalization. And I became very familiar with all these different stories of people that faced really serious uh, repercussions and in some cases pretty long stretches in prison. For conduct that not only uh, wasn't criminal in nature, but wasn't even problematic or damaging in terms of what it really did, but just violated some either obscure or, uh, you know, obscure is a good way. Sometimes it's really, it's not even just that it's obscure. It's, it's that they don't even know if it's a statute or not. They, they don't even, the people enforcing it aren't clear on what's covered and what's not. So how are you supposed to know? Oh, ignorance of the law is not, not a defense. Well, actually, when you're talking about some of this stuff, ignorance of the law should be a defense. But I, I bring that up just because when you're more familiar with those cases, and there's a book even written by uh, Harvey Silvergate, uh, Three Felonies a Day, where he says, you know, you're, you're committing felonies every day. You don't even know it. Doesn't make you a bad person. Doesn't mean you should go to jail. But if you are really being strict in your application of the law, you're probably committing felonies on a pretty regular basis. Um, one of the ones that comes up often is uh, exceeding authorized use of a computer and how often people do that without realizing it. Um, and, and also just exceeding the, uh, the terms of service and what that can mean. All kinds of stuff. Uh, maybe we could have, it'd be interesting to, I'll go, you know, that's a book that I've cited before and I'll be on, and I just know the title, haven't read it. So now I've just given myself a little additional homework. I'll go back. I'll check that one out. But if they have all your stuff and they want to get you, they will. That's the point. There's a way to get you. And if you're a lawyer and you've been dealing with clients who have complicated legal relationships with international entities and are dealing, they're going to be able to get you. The same way that uh, I think it's Donald Rumsfeld some years ago 
admit uh, or not admitted, but but offered that he writes a letter every year to the IRS where he's like, I've I've done the best I can with this, but I know that if you really come after me, you'll tell me that some of this is wrong. Just understand that I can't understand this and I have a lot of resources and I'm a really smart guy and I've done my best. And he actually sends that letter to the IRS every year just to make a point. And he's right. If they if they wanted to overturn all of his books and look at all of his stuff, uh, if they wanted to pour through it, they would find they would find things that are wrong, and maybe could even make a case that some of it was was criminal in nature, a, a criminal violation of the tax code, even by accident. And the same thing is true to the broader tax code. So that's when people say, "Oh, we've got a taint team. We're going to separate out the stuff that uh, is attorney-client privilege from what's not." That's that's a judgment call. And you're already putting a lot of weight on the side of what the prosecutors want and what they're going to get when they have possession of this, when it's when it's something that they already have in uh, in their hands. Um, and, and it's all meant to show that they'll just do anything to get uh, to get Trump and his people. And it was tied into the article I, I mentioned uh, as well about how um, an article I read over the weekend about how Trump, the whole presidency is coming to an end, which I'll talk to you more about later on. But that's not happening. Uh, but they think it is. And they think that this latest uh, tough guy tactic of taking all of uh, Cohen's information, taking all of his electronic devices, pouring through his files. I, I sometimes want to ask, I wish I could sit down and, and actually force people at places like uh, MSNBC and CNN to answer the question, what do they really think they're going to find? What do they think they could produce at this point realistically? Although what's realistic for them, I don't know. It's, I think they're all stuck in a delusion. But realistically, that would not only show that what they think about Trump is true, but also that his base would say, people like me even would say, yeah, you know, that's too much. Come on. What's it really going to be? It's just not, not going to happen. Um, but it's uh, troubling to see that with all the, all the politicization of the judicial process that has occurred, in the Trump era, right, the primary, the general election and afterwards, all the stuff we've seen. And people like Comey are the ones making the decisions about what attorney client privilege does and does not mean for Trump. And they expect us to believe that that's fine, that there's no problem here, that he'll get a fair shake. The swamp is deep, my friends. The swamp is very, very deep. 844-900-2825. You want to chat? 844-900. 900 buck. I got to talk to you about this uh, latest uh, situation with California and the uh, National Guard. One of the one of the more uh, interesting um, questions I ask people out here is, so what, what do you think about governance in California? I and mean, I've been trying to talk to as many folks as as I can about that. Oh, uh, you know, I sat next to a guy at breakfast today who I won't say which one, but I know from a far, from one of these commercials where they they're advertising a. Uh, and he's an actor, right? He's not a, he's not actually somebody that suffers from the condition. Uh, but I sat next to this guy, like that's the guy from that commercial. And he's like, yeah, I've got a, I've got a, an embarrassing condition. You know, that's kind of, I'm like, that's the guy from the commercial. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I never, people that I don't know, but you know, from something, I almost never will go up to them and say anything or whatever. And although all of you, if you ever see me anywhere, because I so rarely actually have, person-to-person contact with members of Team Buck that, like, by all means, come over, give me a high five, you know, we can have a drink. Uh, but I was sitting there, I was like, does this guy like it when people 
say, hey, you're the guy from the commercial. You're the guy with the problem. The problem, you know, the problem with the thing. You know what I mean? You know, I got an embarrassing medical issue. But he doesn't actually have it, right? So that's so he's an actor playing a guy with an embarrassing medical issue, and you think to yourself, you're like, well, you know, do you want to be the in public? No, I think the answer is you leave the guy alone no matter what, obviously. But I just thought it was kind of funny. I was like, yeah, I like him. People are like, hey, are you Buck? I'm like, I am indeed. Um, but I'm known for uh, different things. All right, uh, the California situation. Though, we'll talk about that. Stay with me. Got some calls up, but I've also got to talk to you about what's going on with California and the National Guard sent that's supposed to be sent to the border. Uh, but uh, Scott in Long Beach, Mississippi, you're up first, Scott. Hey. Hey, how you doing, Buck? I'm good. Thanks for the call. I just had a angle to add on the radar on Cohen's office. One thing I haven't heard anybody bring up is, uh, I, yeah, I think they, they're looking for any criminal stuff they can find. But, uh, Right now, a team of FBI agents is going to get to review this stuff. But even if Trump's lawyer, if the lawyer wins in court and gets it reviewed by a master, I've heard that master is going to be a judge. Well, if that judge is an Obama appointee, what if this is just all one big fishing expedition to look for stuff to use against Trump in the 2020 election? Right. Well, I've been saying this, too, that I think that some of the information, forget about whether it's used in a legal proceeding against Trump or any of his people, I, I think you may see leaks of it. Exactly. And, and now we're talking about the equivalent of, you know, what about, is, is it okay if somebody, can the FBI come in and seize a, you know, a president's medical records and then just all of a sudden stuff gets leaked? I mean, it just seems strange. Well, would it surprise you? I mean, look, look how they haven't gone after leakers so far. How many people have they convicted of leaking anything while all this stuff is That's leaked? a very good point. It's not that hard to catch. You know, you'll notice that of all the, of all the anti-Trump leaks out there, there has not been a single conviction of or never mind conviction not even a single person charged and these are leaks exactly. that would have come from a pretty small circle of individuals i mean you look at the leak over the phone call between uh the russian ambassador and uh incoming national security advisor michael flynn there's not a lot of people that have access to this stuff exactly so the fbi gets to look at all his attorney client information what's to keep that from leaking like a sieve to the dnc and other democrats to start digging up all the dirt they can possibly dig up before the 2020 election. No, I, I see it the way you do. I think it's a big problem, uh, Scott. So we'll continue to follow closely, and I appreciate you calling in. Uh, Shields high. So uh, this California story, I just mentioned it, but it's I'm here in Cali. I'm in L.A., so I feel like I it caught my eye in particular. It's such a lovely state. I mean, the water here is so beautiful. The food's so great. People are really fun. But the government here is just just bonkers. I mean, they've got all kinds of problems. But now you got Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, who has rejected Trump's terms for the National Guard's deployment to the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, there's supposed to be 400, like it's not that big of a, uh, not that big of a group here, but, you know, 400 troops are supposed to be sent to the border to help out. And they have determined, meaning uh, that Governor Brown has decided that the work that they would be doing at the border is too close to immigration enforcement. Now, my understanding is that the stuff that they would be doing involves, like, vehicle maintenance. And here, I'm trying to see what the actual list is. Uh, 
because it's not, they're not tracking, the National Guard is not grabbing and arresting people trying to cross the border. And um, what was the, uh, what were the specifics here? Uh, hold on a second. Oh, yeah. Here it is. They would not allow its troops to fix and repair vehicles, operate remote control surveillance cameras, or perform other tasks under Trump's plan. So, yeah, I mean, stuff that's not arresting people or, or actively involved in immigration uh, law enforcement, they, they still won't let, they won't let them do. And this is just another version of saying that, that they, are not, they are opposed. They've got the resources, right? Governor Brown here in California has the resources at his disposal. He could help out with the border, sending some National Guard troops down to the border. Other border state governors have completely gone along with this. I think Trump says he's going to send a, or he's asked for, remember, the governors have to all sign off on this. Trump's going to ask for a total of 4,000 to help out with border-related tasks, uh, which especially as we get into uh, some of the uh, warmer months, you have a lot higher rate of, uh, of border crossings. So, And I think they're expecting a surge. You got all this publicity around the uh, so-called caravan. That's not the last caravan you're going to see. It's certainly not, uh, well, mostly illegal crossings have nothing to do with caravans, just people crossing every day. Uh, but what can we think about this other than Governor Jerry Brown doesn't really believe in the mission of Border Patrol and the federal government's mission of securing the border. I think he's just not someone who believes it. You know, I, I, and this is not surprising if you follow the trajectory of uh, politics in states that have a very large illegal alien population. Uh, they are now states that are, that are favorable toward a near open border status. And this is why we can't even really have a very productive discussion with the Democrats, because it used to be, hey, and even a state like California would be, hey, how do we cut down on illegal crossings? You know, how, the, and the what to do about illegals in the country was considered a separate part of the discussion. But everyone was as recently as I would say 10 years ago. Everyone was at least theoretically in the political class on board for securing the border. There was a bipartisan consensus. Yeah, we need a secure border. Sure. Fine. And that's gone now. Uh, California views a secure border as a bad thing because the people that are illegal in California have a tremendous amount of sway in the country, or in the state, rather, well, in the country as well. Um, and there are many people that have either familial bonds, ties of uh, you know kinship, uh, friends, colleagues, coworkers, whatever, in the illegal alien population who also view any enforcement of border security as some kind of slap in the face, some kind of attack on them. So uh, sure enough, the Governor Brown here is backing down. I think Trump called him Governor Moonbeam. <laughs> uh, he's backing off of that. No surprise. Uh, we're going to talk Syria coming up here in just a few minutes and also what Trump's really doing. Stay with me. Since Election Day, we've created three million new jobs. Three million. And, and people, if I would have said that prior to the election, that we'll create in a short period of time three million jobs, they would have said, that's ridiculous, that's an exaggeration, how can it be possible? We would have taken a lot of heat. But we've created three million new jobs, and now the number is even higher than that. So since Election Day, three million new jobs. Unemployment rates for Hispanics. Are there any Hispanics in the room? No, I don't. For Hispanics, the, we have the lowest level ever recorded. The story of 
many, many millions of people who come to this country to look for an opportunity. And our president has now restored the capacity of people like me that started a business from the trunk of our cars to become a very prominent company where we impact over 50, 40,000 families. And thank you, Mr. President. I'm very happy that right before he was elected, uh, we had a town hall meeting. And I took the liberty of elected him. I said, we're going to elect you in November, and we're going to see you soon. I'm, my God, I look prophetic today. <laughs> so 51% of the country, according to Rasmussen, approves the job that President Trump is doing, which is really high for a president at this stage of the game, higher than Obama's approval at this point in time. And yet you, you can see that there are completely... There are narratives that are so different right now of what's going on in the country that you have to think that we're talking about a different country, right? You have, on the one hand, uh, a narrative of an administration that is letting the letting the American people's business be business and let them do what they do, trying to take the constraints, the shackles of government regulation off of our backs and uh, off of the, the labor that we all do in, in our, our jobs, our day-to-day lives. And, and then on the other hand, you have you have people that are supposed to be informing us about this and talking about what's really going on that, that matters to all of you. And what you are left with is people who say things like, oh, th- this weekend, uh, the New Yorker published an essay. And they would just say, oh, it's just it's just like an essay, man. It's not like, you know, we wrote it. It's like one author's opinion, man. But what they publish is obviously a reflection of what they think we should all read and know. Not that that many people read The New Yorker in the first place, but it was a piece on how this is the basically the we're in the end times of the Trump presidency. And it was a completely serious piece in, in the sense that this was not not trying to be a, uh, a a send up of things. This was not meant to be a parody. This was totally serious that we are in the phase of the end. Of, it, it's like the Berlin Wall is coming down. The, the Trump presidency is about to end and pointing to the Michael Cohen record seizure as the evidence that that's really all the evidence you need that this is all coming down and all falling apart. You know, you wonder at what point they stop making these predictions at what point being wrong becomes problematic enough for them that they will no longer keep at it. Because last year I remember the New Yorker and I actually uh, pulled some of this over the weekend to read the New Yorker was writing about, it was one of those publications that found it fashionable to write about how fascism was coming to America. The, the courtesy of Trump, right? That Trump was going to be a fascist. And is, is, isn't it amazing when you think about this? Trump is going to be a fascist, they say. Meanwhile, the guy is being stymied and blocked left and right by random federal judges. And his response is never, you know, seize that federal judge and take him into custody. You know, He's like, all right, I, mean, I think that guy's wrong, but, you know, we'll see you in court. And we're not going to just run roughshod over all different parts of the judiciary. We, we'll go through the process. They talk about a, a, a president who is undermining all of our institutions. Meanwhile, he plays within the guidelines as president of these institutions more so than his predecessor did. You know, Obama was the one who was like, you know, I've got a pen on a phone. And he was just going to do stuff, whether or not it was within his constitutionally delegated authority to do so. Trump is like, well, okay, I wanted to do that, but I guess I can't right now, and we'll see, and we'll move on to other stuff. Trump is the one who's made 
serious efforts to negotiate with the other side on issues like immigration. I mean, his immigration offer of amnesty for DACA, uh, DACA-covered individuals, is more than anyone would have imagined a Republican in his position would have started out with. And Democrats were like, no, no, they don't want it. No part of it. Not enough for them. And you see the the focus still on on Cohen and the lawyer and the Russia probe. And I don't know. We've all, I mean, part of me likes the Comey story because it's so it's such a good way to illustrate uh, grandiose bureaucrats. I think that all of us getting a solid dose of Sancta Comey is a pretty is pretty uh, worthwhile in that sense. But I also don't want to give this guy much more attention and much more of our uh, of our viewership and and spending our our very precious hours listening to him drone on about leadership and ethics because I think that ultimately he is a, well not just a waste of our time I think he's pretty destructive I think he's doing a lot of things that are very problematic for the country and uh, certainly problematic for the federal bureaucracy and the notion of civil servants as public servants instead of well, self-servicing and self-promoting. Uh, but Trump is, is out there and he's still making the case. And I think that as long as as long as the, the economy holds together and we're able to forestall a debt crisis, it's coming, but hopefully it won't hit at a point that is too damaging for the Trump presidency. As long as all that's happening, he, he's in pretty good shape and uh, will be in pretty good shape for uh, the midterms. He, here's what he said, by the way, about What's going on with companies coming into the country? 19. Uh, We're working on new trade deals that are going to be great deals. Uh, We're, as you know, very tough on Cuba. Not fair. Not fair what happened. Companies are moving back into our country now. We have billions of dollars and even trillions of dollars going to be coming back in. Already started Apple, $350 billion investment. So many of the companies are bringing back their money. They're putting it to work. Uh, Chrysler is opening up a big, beautiful plant in Michigan and so many other car companies. And it's a whole different story. They all want to be part of it. What would the narrative from the mainstream media be like if none of this was happening? I think it's a, a fun thought experiment. What would they be saying if you didn't have record low unemployment, record low Hispanic and African American unemployment, uh, if you didn't have companies bringing back billions of dollars, to re- repatriating it into the states, uh, also promising to have more jobs here. Think about what it would sound like then. I mean, he's at 51%. This is quite a feat. And it's really an extenuate or a uh, an extension of what he did during the primary. He's at 51% with the entire media apparatus, not just opposed to him, but actively rooting for him to be Uh, criminally charged, indicted, and thrown out of office. All of the above. And that you have entire media entities that have devoted themselves to that process. That's what they want to happen here. Fortunately, the country is actually doing well, and people can see that. And so there's a a counterbalance, the counterbalancing force of reality against the destructive media narrative about Trump is, is, uh, is remarkable. It really is. You know, if... If we were at a time of stagnation and, you know, unemployment was going up and you kind of, could you imagine, what would they even be saying? I don't know. Would they just focus on that instead of uh, what they're doing with the Trump 
uh, Russia collusion fairy tale they've been telling for so long? I don't know. But I just I, I, I feel like, you know, you get it here because you won't hear it a whole lot of other places. I like to tell you that you know what Trump is doing, it is working in ways that matter to you and me every day. And they can talk about Michael Cohen till they're blue in the face. All right, we got to, oh, I want to update you on Syria, the aftermath of those strikes. Uh, so we'll hit that coming up. Stay with me. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. The sole reason we are there is to take out ISIS. But as we start to see in the world community watches as Syria kills innocent men, women, and and, uh, children, backed by Bashar al-Assad, backed by Russia, backed by Iran, the United States and its allies had to act. And so that's exactly what we did. We believe we degraded their ability to use chemical weapons to kill people. So there you had uh, State Department spokeswoman Heather Nauert on the... uh, strikes some uh, follow-up to the strikes in syria by the way if you didn't get a chance uh, to read it please do check out on the on the hill.com I, I wrote on this uh, my title was something along the lines of trump's serious strike hits the mark but uh you know instability looms um there there's a real or escalation looms rather um i have concerns about that but here here's more of what i'm thinking after that whole thing happened i i spent time i obviously wrote about it over the weekend i spent more time thinking as well about why did we fire these missiles off and blow up a, a bunch of chemical weapons factories in Syria? Uh, I think that the uh, the eventual answer we're going to come to on this is that it, it won't really mean very much. It, it doesn't mean all that much. And I'm not sure that you can say anything has been accomplished other than messaging here. And, and how important you think that is, uh, is a very debatable proposition. You know, on the one hand, yeah, I get it. We, we don't want to be living in a world where dictators think that they can use chemical weapons with impunity on their own people. I, I understand that. But I also see this and think to myself, you're talking about dozens of people killed in a very uh, inhuman and uh, or inhumane and, and brutal fashion. But you got a half a million people have died in the Syrian civil war. Uh, and this is not stopping that war. In fact, it might you could argue it could uh, it could prolong it. Uh, it could make it. Now, I don't think that standing up against chemical weapons will prolong it, but a, a greater U.S. involvement that may come from that strike uh, could make this thing drag on even longer. And then you also have this notion that uh, we've really affected their chemical weapons program, which I got to tell you, I find... I find tough. I know I've, I've seen some of the analysis on this. Uh, I think maybe Mattis last week said... That, you know, we put or I don't I, don't quote me on that one. I'm not sure it was Mattis, but people were saying tie the administration. We've set their chemical weapons program back uh, you know, years, you know, many, many months that this will be really meaningful as a, a way of um, hitting them at, at basically uh, taking their capability offline. I find that tough. Uh, I find that tough to believe because I think I mentioned this to you a bit last week. Even sarin gas, which is a nerve gas, more more advanced and more terrifying than, say, uh, chlorine gas or, or even mustard gas. Uh, but sarin gas has been around since, uh, what, 1937? It was initially, it came from pesticide research. They were trying to find something that was really effective at killing bugs. 
So you've got World War II era technology. That's what when we're discussing sarin gas, it is a World War II era technology. It is not hard uh, to come up with this. And even if you were to assume, as and I think this is a big assumption, assume that the chemical weapons facilities and capabilities that the Assad regime has were just completely wiped out by those U.S. strikes, I think that's, I, I think it's a, it's a tough sell for me that they won't be able to relatively quickly uh, reconstitute that and use it as they see fit. Now, Keep in mind they don't they don't have to nor nor will they use chemical weapons on a regular basis even uh, even before we did this strike it was relatively speaking uh, a rare tactic for them um, but uh, by the way Trump Trump spoke about this and and the Syrian and Russian response uh, John play seventeen. Did our generals do a great job? Did our military do a great job? And you know, with way over 100 missiles shot in, they didn't shoot one down. The equipment didn't work too well, their equipment. And uh, they didn't shoot one. You know, you heard, oh, they shot 40 down. Then they shot 15 down. They watched. Then I called. I said, did they? No, sir. Every single one hit its target. Think of that. How genius. Not one was shot. Now, it's good to know that America has the capability to get past Things like uh, the surface-to-air missile systems that the Syrians have that they've gotten or borrowed or been able to uh, leverage Russian technology in order to have. Uh, but that also doesn't deal with the fundamental problem of the Syrian civil war and the conventional weapons usage that's killing far more people than anything that's having to deal with the chemical weapons side. So I, I know the administration feels strongly about this, and uh, it seems like Trump has very much set a line for our actions over there that we're not going to get deep, which is that's critical. That was the, my big concern going into this. Cause I remember when I talked to you about this on Friday, I said, I, I'm, I'm hoping I kind of knew that there was going to be a strike. I was like, I'm hoping that they don't really do this, but if they do, at least it should be limited. Um, and, and I, I think that the precedent that it sets as well, when it comes to constitutional, well, oh, you know, this is how much can I even be upset about the precedent when all presidents basically do this? You know, I see a national security problem somewhere. I'm just going to fire some missiles at it. That seems to be the approach of it's a bipartisan approach. There's something that I really don't like and I'm president. I'm going to send some missiles and blow it up. You know, is the War Powers Act constitutional? Eh, Who knows? One of the more acrimonious debates that doesn't seem to go anywhere is does the president need to confer with Congress or not before declaring war? I get people on both sides of that one that are completely convinced of the the rightness of their position and think that the other side is just, just nuts. Um, but you know, Syria, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening in the, uh, in the months ahead. That'll give us a much better sense of whether they really are just limiting this to a, a, a one-off against Assad that, that maintains the red line that Obama abandoned, but that does not drag us deeper into this thing. Uh, it was a big, it was a big promise that Trump made during the campaign, that we would not be fighting. I think he was just referring to them as stupid wars on a pretty regular basis. We're not going to fight stupid wars. We're not going to do that. And uh, sure enough, I I think that this is going to be the the real rubber-meets-the-road moment of whether or not Trump keeps that promise. 
because I, I don't want it. You don't want it. It's, it's a terrible idea for us to start putting ourselves in a place where we are responsible for what happens in Syria. Uh, we're responsible every time somebody sets off an IED or, or puts a, uh, puts a car bomb somewhere that just, we've got other things we've got to do with our resources and our people. Uh, we've got a country to build here and continue building. I think that's a, that's a fair way to look at it. All right. I, I want to uh, get into some uh, cultural stuff in the next hour. That'll be fun, including wokeness and how it destroys all your favorite movies and TV shows. If you let it, we'll talk about that coming up. Enough with revisiting things. Stop being surprised every time you watch an old movie or TV show and find some of the ideas in it are old. (laughs) A recent article by Molly Ringwald got a lot of attention because she revisited The Breakfast Club and her other 80s movies and found them troubling in the age of Me Too. She said she was taken aback by the scope of the ugliness. Oh, please. They were teen comedies, not snuff films. So there, that's a, we can cut it there. You, welcome to hour three of the Buck Saxon Show. There you had uh, Bill Maher, a uh, left-wing comedian, uh, saying what I've been saying. So th- this is good news in a sense. Uh, this, this makes me happy uh, that even people on the left are figuring out that this game that the left has really enjoyed playing for a while, this game of, uh, hey, let's go back and look once again at, at everything that was made as, as art and entertainment from decades ago, and apply the current uh, the current standards of being woke, of being a social justice warrior to it, you're not going to have anything left. You're not going to have any music left. You're not going to have any TV shows left. Uh, it, it's all a lot of books are going to be forbidden. Bill Maher is seeing what I've seen uh, for a long time now, which is that the uh, the progressive left has decided that it, it, it will wield its power beyond its ability to even describe its outer limits when it comes to uh, being censors of entertainment, pop culture, and, and what is acceptable in discourse. As I've been mentioning to you, there are no outer limits to this. There's no place where I can say, okay, well, they'll, they'll leave that alone because with the exception, as noted here, of, uh, of hip-hop music, uh, for, for whatever reason, they don't really get into the misogyny and the particular. Although some of you are also going to say, "Well, you know, Buck, there's a lot of uh, a lot of casual adultery and uh, and drinking and pickup truck talk, uh, where there's not a lot of labor going on in the back of pickup truck, but maybe other stuff in country music." And I would say that may be true as well. Uh, I'm not as familiar with country music in fa- as as I am with hip hop music. As an urban dweller, um, I know more about the hip hop side of things. Believe it or not, uh, I, for some of you, you're like, I do not believe it, Buck. But uh, then again, some of you also believe when I tweeted out a photo of a stretch pink Hummer this past weekend that it was really my car. Uh, so some people, you know, some people believe some stuff. I wonder. I bet. A, I bet that stretch pink Hummer. I, I put a photo up on, on Twitter of it. It was really like double stretch too. It was. It's a, like the biggest car I've I've seen, uh, and it was pink, pink, and it was a Hummer. Uh, it's got to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars or something. I mean, the thing's got to be really maybe 150 grand, 200 grand, very expensive. Uh, nonetheless, I view uh, this as a threat. I view this wokeness uh, component as a a threat to all of the things that we can enjoy together in society. It, it's a big problem because it it pulls us apart. 
one of the things that really brings us together, is, and I don't know if any of you saw, there was a, uh, over the weekend, a, a video making the rounds of a professional hockey player. There was this adorable little girl. She's there with her brothers and her dad. And he keeps trying to throw a puck over the plexiglass to her. And, and one of the, the her, I think her brother grabs one. And then another brother gets another one. And the guy comes over this hockey player a third time to make sure this girl, and she gets the puck. You know, she gets the little puck thrown to her over the plexiglass divider at the at the ice hockey game. And she has this look of just pure, unfiltered joy in her face. And it's just really cute and funny, and it's, it's it was a great little, uh, great little moment. And I think that sports, movies, TV, these are a lot of the things that actually bring us into a place where we can agree and like them together, right? Food, do another, do another thing I like to talk about here on the show a lot, food, because I like food. Uh, but those are things that, that are common ground for us. You know, if, if I'm sitting down, uh, oh, you know, I, I'm somebody who actually, I like to chat with uh, Uber drivers, right? I, I'm somebody who doesn't usually sit completely silently in the, in the car. I feel like I'm driving with this fellow or this madam, and uh, I would like to, uh, like to engage in some kind of a uh, friendly banter, a little chit chat, a little back and forth. And you know, what's a place where you can pretty easily go talk about sports, talk about movies, talk about TV shows. You know, these days for me, it's, you know, what do you watch on Netflix? And most people, unless they just don't want to talk to you at all, you can find some way to say, yeah, we, we can discuss this. And that's why I find it troubling beyond just the irritation of social justice warriors who find who won't let us find humor in anything, who refuse to accept that a world that is constrained by their vision of what is acceptable today is not only going to be uh, stunted and and is going to be way less interesting and exciting than it would otherwise be, it also negates much of the shared culture and history that we have as a society that brings us together. And now I know some of you are thinking, oh, Buck, ah, you're taking this beyond TV shows too. Yeah, of course. This is where we get into uh, statues that have to come down. And this is where we get into uh, mascots and whether they're offensive or not. And all these other parts of what is shared in this country that is now subject to the, the political whims of the moment. And it, the response from the left on this is always the same. Destroy, pull it down. And I've been bringing these to your attention in recent weeks. Apu from The Simpsons. And it is amazing. Hank Azaria, who does that, who's a, who's a white guy like me, he does that voice. I have to sit here and say, I don't think I'm allowed to do an impersonation of Hank Azaria doing an impersonation of an Indian convenience store owner. I, I don't think that I'd be able to do that without risking some kind of backlash, right? So that, that's, you can see the rules here don't, aren't even clear, don't even make any sense. Uh, the Breakfast Club with Molly Molly Ringwald's essay. That's what uh, Bill Maher was talking about there. Um, there are a, a bunch of, oh, a Friends, which is whenever Miss Molly wants to upset me, she tells me that I'm not being very Chandler. I'm being much more Ross. Those who know the show know what I'm talking about. Those who don't are like, Buck, what is wrong with you? Uh, but anyway, the the uh, you, you find any show, and it, it'll either be homophobic, transphobic, uh, sexist, and I just say, you know what, at some point we also need to understand that art is allowed to be offensive, right? It, there's a difference between celebrating every aspect of an artistic work of one kind or another and also allowing for the space for there to be uh, art that will push buttons in the first place. 
And, and, and this is also why whenever we start to have this conversation, you can see that uh, liberals respond just with, with a rage um, because they're drunk on the power they have in this current moment and they don't want to have to defend it. They like being able to be the censors because if they control the culture, they will control politics and they know it and they know it. That's why it's so essential to them. And that's why they're, they're willing to just uh, just keep on pushing through despite all the contradictions. Sugar is bad for you. Doesn't mean it's not delicious. Doesn't mean that I don't like some very sugary things myself. Of course I do. It's a, it's a weakness. I have to be aware of it. But I, I just note that uh, as I look through more and more information about uh, opioids and how the pain epidemic in this country, which was really an opioid epidemic in response to concerns over chronic pain, uh, but but how that all happened and how the scientific community, in this case, the medical community, was way off the mark in the 90s and in the early 2000s. And practicing good medicine at the time was, in many cases, incredibly uh, dangerous and really counterproductive for people. Uh, but I'm just reminded of, of how, you know, I'm here in California and you have the whole, you know, nanny state in full effect. And I was talking to some people today about, you know, so how, how how's that whole high-speed rail thing coming along? They're like, not so good, Buck. Not so good. Pretty expensive, and it's a pretty bad idea, too. Um, but sure enough, you've got the paper bag only, no plastic bag, so you've got that ban. I think you're going to see more and more efforts to uh, regulate what we eat uh, as essentially treating sugar as a um, a public health crisis. I, I, th- I really do believe you're going to see this. Um, just noting that uh, over the weekend, I think I, uh, yeah, I saw an interview on Reason.com's website with uh, Gary Talbis, who I've had on the show. I had him on almost a, maybe a year ago, give or take a month. I've always thought his work was really interesting on, you know, why do we have some of the health problems, particularly diabetes and obesity? Why has there just been a, a, an enormous surge in those issues? And uh, sugar is the most likely culprit. And I just have to take a moment to laugh because, you know, much of the policy here in California is based on, or, or I should say much of the conversation around policy. The policy is not, in fact, based in scientific fact. Uh, but it, they have this idea that science can solve everything. And I do think that technology makes the world better in so many ways. I think that technology is, is advancing uh, our lives and advancing human progress in, in remarkable ways. But science is is a is a constant series of questions and answers. Right? It's it's not there's this thing we know and no more questions asked. And uh, just as with opioids, how 20 years ago people were saying, yeah, you know, there's really not a lot of evidence that it's uh, it's addictive. Oh, yes, it is. Right. If you give people Oxycontin, they're going to get at some point they're going to get addicted. People might have a different uh, biochemistry. It might be more addictive for some than than for others. But they were wrong, wrong, wrong on this. And this is here in America, and this is in my lifetime. And another place where they've just been wrong, wrong, wrong is sugar. And the role of sugar in our diets and how it's just, it, it is uh, creating wreckage all around. Um, and there's a, there's a profit motive in putting more sugar into stuff. It's become very, very cheap. There was a time when sugar was actually, and many of you know this, you know this history, sugar was actually very expensive. Uh, and hard to get, and that, and also the the labor that it required was 
backbreaking, really difficult stuff, and that was why it, it re- relied uh, predominantly in the Caribbean and in parts of uh, the Americas where sugar could be grown. It relied on slavery. So it was really nasty, tough work, and uh, the sugar cane had to be processed. You know, right, it had to go through the process right away. Uh, but now it's become, and really in the 20th century, it became such a bigger part of our diets. And the advice that we were all getting, the advice that we were getting on the food pyramid and, and for what we should be doing in our day-to-day diets was just wrong, folks. It was bad. I remember being in science class in the fifth grade, and we're all learning the food pyramid, and they're telling me to eat six to 12 servings of rice and grain and white bread and, you know, all day long. It's just terrible. This is terrible for us. I mean, this notion that I, I think back to people thinking that peanut butter and jelly was a healthy snack. No, it is not a healthy snack, right? But if you were grow, if you were a child of the eighties like me, people thought like, I want a PB and J, and people thought, oh, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good option. Would you like a snack? Yeah, it just just give me a whole bunch of uh, processed carbs and then some some gelatinous sugar and, and throw a little peanut butter on there, which has an incredibly high calorie and fat content and doesn't even have the benefits of say almond butter or some of the other uh, nut butters out there. Um, but the, the scientific community was wrong on that, too. Uh, the, and whatever research was done on it, a lot of it was actually put forward by the sugar companies and the sugar lobby, which is even more amazing when you think about it. Uh, the, the war on high-fat food. Um, the, the notion that bacon and butter and... Uh, I, I know, right? This is it, it enrages me, too, that these things are bad for you. This became the conventional wisdom. And it was, the, and it still is kind of, you're still seeing people trying to push back and, oh no, you know, it's, it's really good for you. You, you need, you know, you need these processed carbs in your diet. Nah, not really. Very, very little. Uh, you know, my problem here, as I sit here is, you know, I, I like, I like to just indulge too much in some of the things that are good for you in smaller amounts. Right. I'm like, yeah, I don't like a little bit of bacon. I like a lot of bacon. Uh, French fries I know are not good for you, but I just eat them cause I can't help it. Cause that's of all the food weaknesses I have. I'm like, well, I mean, let's get a side of fries. Right. I should probably cut that. I'd probably live five years longer if I just stopped eating French fries, but I, I can't help myself. Although out here, you know, they've got, they've got in and out Burger here in California, which the burgers are amazing. I obviously get them with no bun. I get a lettuce wrap. Um, but the fries are kind of weak sauce. I'm just going to say it. The fries are on the weak sauce side. Uh, but anyways, sugar is going to be something there are going to be fights over sugar. And I think California is going to be at the forefront of that. There are going to be efforts to tell you that sugar should be regulated. Look, we had it in New York with the, the big drinks, right? The Bloombergian, you you shouldn't be having too much sugar in your drinks. Uh, and now is a 60 ounce big gulp a good idea for anyone? Probably not. (laughs) Do I think that the government should tell you? That you can have it? No. If they want to put up signs that let you know that you're ingesting uh, a few uh, thousand calories um, by drinking this stuff over the course of, you know, a few days or, you know, over the course of a week. Yeah, I think it's good for them to give you the full knowledge of it. Um, but I just also look at this as the, the, the response to science and government don't really mix that well when it comes to policy shouldn't be, oh, well, we're going to get it right this time. Forget about individual freedom. Let's just have more nanny state. And whether it was nanny state in dealing with pain, because that was all very, it was all very regulated, and this was government policy to, uh, you know, what drugs would be allowed and what amounts. And 
Um, you know, how quick and you tie in the HMOs and how they were trying to get people in and out, in and out of these offices very, very quickly. Uh, that was disastrous for the uh, opioid epidemic in this country and also the big pharma. Don't even get me started. We'll talk about that all day. But all but sugar is is a scourge that I wish I had known about when I was younger. I mean, I, just little things that I think about a, a big glass of orange juice. I thought that was healthy. That is not healthy. You are basically having the equivalent of a Coke in terms of, yeah, it's got some vitamin C. Great. Uh, the vitamin C absorption is not as good because it lacks the fiber of an actual orange that you would eat. And the amount of sugar, I mean, uh, orange juice can actually be used as a sweetener in other foods. So when you think about orange juice as something that, and I know, I, I guess we're not going to have an OJ sponsor on the show anytime soon, but what can you do? Uh, but when you think about orange juice as something like honey that you would put in something else to sweeten it, now imagine drinking a glass of honey first thing in the morning. And, and you'd be like, wow, that's a bad idea, right? But this, our whole conception of this, and, and scientists and the, the food pyramid and what you should eat and what's healthy, they were wrong about all this. And it was government policy. And the government policy was being pushed along by private sector interests that could care less about what was making you healthy. Uh, Taubus, I think, is a fascinating guy on this. Um, he, he's done the most interesting, he's a journalist, he's not even a scientist, but he's done the most interesting research on why is it that we can't seem to figure out what really causes people to uh, to gain weight, to have all these pro- these these health-related issues from weight gain. And when you look at the cost to our society uh, in, in all kinds of ways, but particularly just the medical costs of, of having people that don't have the proper instruction about sh- the role of sugar in the diet, uh, it's vast. It's it's enormous. And I, I But I know this is happening. I just had this, as I was walking around today in the, in the Galleria here and uh, seeing all these different places that are, just slinging sugar drinks at you as fast as they can. Uh, this is going to be a, a fight with the nanny state that looms ahead. I'm, I have a I have a feeling, and I tend to be right about these things. All right, I, I want to talk to you about political scientists in a moment here. Uh, one of my basic theses you've heard me on the show uh, say before, I, I think, is that we shouldn't call it political science. And I've got a great data point as to why that is. Uh, you could also call a lot of these people who are professional political scientists clowns after hearing what I have to say, but it has to do with the worst president of all time. Who is it, according to our highly educated political science class? We'll tell you when we get back. I don't think that political scientists are scientists, and I say this as someone who uh, technically has a, an academic background and wrote an honors thesis in political science at Amherst College. My thesis, by the way, was on a college speech, a college campus speech codes. You can imagine how popular that was among the various political science professors who love those speech codes because they want to protect people from scary thoughts. Uh, but there, there, I couldn't help but be struck by this uh, because, as I've said, I, I don't believe that political scientists are, are scientists. I think that they're it's a discipline, but it's really like a, a multidisciplinary analysis of history and contemporary you know, political forces. And anyway, I think at, at Harvard, they actually call it politics instead of political science. I think the political science as a, as a, uh, a discipline, that's the word I was looking for. I was going to say doctrine, but that would have been wrong. As a discipline, is, it's just pr- imp- improperly named. Anyway, you get this piece on Yahoo News, where they still, still a lot of people use Yahoo. It's kind of amazing to me. Uh, Yahoo is, is still a thing. But uh, Donald Trump is ranked the worst president in U.S. history. 
in this, according to a 2018 Presidents and Executive Politics Presidential Greatness Survey. Trump is lower than President Nixon on this one. Um, So that's pretty amazing. Even among conservatives, uh, Abraham Lincoln, unsurprisingly, takes the top prize, this says. So they do this study every four years, and it's from social science researchers from the American Political Science Association section on presidents and executive politics. Whoa, there's a crazy seminar to go to at some point. Hey, man, did you go to the American Political Science Association section on presidents and executive politics last year? It was wild, man. Did you see what they had there with the ice luge? It was crazy. No, not really. I don't think that that's the way it goes. Uh, but but uh, this is funny to me for a whole bunch of reasons because it's actually a great example of n- n- keep this in mind these are people who at least theoretically from what we know spend their entire professional lives spend countless hours of their day uh, trying to find ways to gr- better understand politics in general and American politics more specifically and what we find out is that they are incapable of putting together some pretty basic and rational thoughts here. Uh, What we find out is that they would put Trump lower on the list, lower on the list than, say, oh, Woodrow Wilson, who was a Klan apologist who uh, resegregated the federal government, who wished the South uh, had defeated the North in the Civil War. I mean, Woodrow Wilson was a bad guy. Uh, By the way, all kinds of eugenicist inclinations as well. And you notice that they don't want to, or at least they haven't yet named, renamed Woody Woo, which is the School of International Relations at Princeton University. They let that go. Uh, they put Trump way ahead of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, as we know, gets a complete pass to this day for one of the darkest episodes, certainly in 20th century American politics, where he put Americans in internment camps, Japanese Americans put in internment camps. So so uh, Woodrow Wilson was a racist, segregationist, uh, eugenicist, and who actually took, took actions based on those ideas. Not, these, these are not just like personal attacks. And FDR was a constitution-shredding uh, semi-authoritarian, and they, they say Trump is worse. I mean, Trump is even worse than some of those 19th century presidents we've had in the run-up to the Civil War that everyone's like, well, that guy was really bad. Uh, but this just goes to show you how completely out of touch uh, political scientists are, not, not with the public, which is that goes without saying, uh, but with the reality around them. And, and also, it goes more toward my theory of, I just don't believe the political scientists are really scientists. Yeah, I know they can do regression analysis and they can throw some numbers on these things and they can make it look sciency, but the discipline is really politics and politics is the study of uh, history and human power dynamics and, and relations between groups and individuals, right? And, and the individual and the state, okay? <laughs> and philosophy and there's a whole bunch of stuff thrown into it, but it, it is not a science. It is poorly named. I, I'm like a one-man band here, I know, but... It, we should all just call it politics and stop calling it political science because political scientists are a bunch of bozos based on this study. Trump is the worst president ever. Wow, guys. Yeah, all the low unemployment and economic growth and prosperity is just terrible. All right, we got roll call coming up. Stay with me. Well, team, I'm out here in uh, Los Angeles, and that's always a, a fun time. The, the weather is 
nicer than New York. I saw video of a, a subway stop that I take on a regular basis that it, it looked like the end times. Uh, we had some kind of a flash flood from rain in New York City, or at least in the subways. So being in L.A., that part of it's really nice. Uh, out here at our uh, iHeart uh, HQ in Los Angeles or in the Los Angeles area, I'm actually in, in what is the Valley, which is kind of like L.A., but kind of not. Uh, but I'm enjoying it out here. It was freezing cold for L.A. last night, though, I will say. For some reason, wherever I go, it's a lot colder than it's supposed to be when I'm there. I am not good not good luck when it comes to weather. Uh, the other thing about L.A. is that even though I take, I take Uber pretty much everywhere here, I'm not somebody who gets any joy out of driving. Uh, I, I like to just sort of sit back and relax. I don't really particularly get excited about being the guy, fighting the traffic. Even still... So much time in in cars out here. I I need to be able to walk to places. So that's that's my only thing on LA for right now. But I'm having a good time out here, meeting with all kinds of important folks from uh, Radio Land, and getting a chance to uh, chat with them. So with that, let me stop. Just I'll hopefully have some uh, better stories about my LA trip. I just got in yesterday, and uh, so I, I haven't been able to hang out with T Swift or or I don't know if Cardi B is LA based. But I like to throw in Cardi B references now because I just found out who this artist is. And apparently that's what the cool kids listen to right now. So, you know, maybe I'll go by the set of, gosh, I don't even know. They don't, they don't do Leno or, or Letterman out here. So what are the shows that they do out? I, I don't know. I need to learn more about L.A. With that rambling sense of whatever I've got in my head, it is time for your thoughts, my friends. Some roll call. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. <laughs> I love that we got the announcer to say keeping it real. <laughs> I don't know why. That just sort of... And for those who don't know, that's from the uh, the movie Clueless. Because I'm, I'm keeping it real. Uh, and then that became a phrase that everybody continued to use. I, I think it's still used. Or people will say keeping it 100 now as well uh, for shorthand. But I just, I, I like our announcer. Keeping it real. Uh, all right, let's get into all of the latest good stuff here from Roll Call. If you want to be a part of it, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That is all you need, and you can send us a message there. We read them all, we enjoy them all, and uh, we try to get as many on the air as we can. So we have Amy first up here. She writes, uh, oh, my gosh, Buck, read some Comey excerpts uh, from the book, in a Valley Girl accent, it would be comedic gold or read some in a Valley Girl accent since Comey is being such a little girl. <laughs> well, Amy, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I, have a, I have a very negative view of, of Comey based on his public persona. I feel like I really understand who Comey is, as I've been discussing throughout the show. I feel like it's quite clear this is someone who oof, has gone through life with an irrationally high self-regard. And uh, that's that explains a lot. I think that that takes us pretty close to where we where we are with all this. Um, thank you very much for the note. We have Phil up next. He writes, "Buck, great show Friday. Creed on your playlist negates any chick artists you may find there. You get to keep your man card. Thank you very much, Phil. I appreciate that. I'm going to hold on to my man card. I, I need it." Uh, he also writes, "Creed morphed into an even more powerhouse band, Alter Bridge." which I highly recommend to any Freedom Hut listener. Well, Philip, I can tell you. In fact, 
you can fact check me on this one because of my public Spotify playlists uh, that I have Alter Bridge on there. So I, I am familiar with and enjoy Alter Bridge. Uh, I, I, I like any of that kind of uh, that kind of power rock stuff I'm into, especially if, it, if it's more positive sounding. My only problem with some of the heavier rock is, is the moment people start doing the growl, like, are you ready? You know, all that kind of stuff. I, that's, I don't like that. It's scary. It sounds a little mean. I like the, the rock that's melodic and, and inspiring. And now I sound like a huge dork, but you know what? I own it. I own it. I let, I let, it, I let it roll. Uh, see, this is what I tell Miss Molly when she says that my shoe choice, for example, is old man-like. I say yes, but my feet are comfortable, and I don't care if people don't like the shoes that I wear. Except when I'm on TV. I, I have conceded on that one now. You will notice I, I do not wear... If I ever wear uh, boat shoes on TV now, it's because I'm in a very, very comfortable environment, and I, I feel like I might as well you know, just chill. But generally speaking, I, I, I wear shinable shoes. That's the new... Uh, that's the new regime. I mean, I'm wearing boat shoes right now. Don't worry. But in general, I on TV wear shinable shoes. All right. Next up, we get uh, Erica. She writes, I was listening to last Thursday's show and your discussion of opioid addiction. I found the idea you expressed last month about how people aren't being killed by prescription drugs, rather by ODing on illegal drugs flowing in through our weak border. I saw this chart with an article on how the reconfiguration of OxyContin in 2010 caused the jump to illegal drug use. Well, Erica, first of all, thank you for your message. And let me be clear about what I was at least trying to say, if not what I did say about all this. Uh, the, 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 the truth about OxyContin and, and about opioid over, overdose is complicated, and, and I would commend to you all, and I, I actually tweeted at him over the weekend just to let him know how great I thought his book was, Sam Quinones. Uh, might be Quinones. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but uh, his book Dreamland is so good. I'm almost done with it. I'm reading three books. Uh, well, sorry. See, that sounds like a humble brag, but it's really just because I my attention gets scattered, and I force myself now to be reading a novel. So I'm reading uh, three books simultaneously, not at the same time, but content. Maybe contemporaneously is a better way to describe it, and one that makes it sound less like I should punch myself in the face. But uh, yeah, I, one of them is Dreamland. It's really, really good. Uh, but to, to your point about the, the deaths, uh, people still die for prescription drug overdose, no question. In fact, I, I think I've mentioned to you before on this show, I had uh, two very close childhood friends, as we, obviously as we got a bit older, uh, who both overdosed on prescription drugs. I don't know the specifics. I never wanted to um, uh, in any way be insensitive to the family, so I didn't ask. Uh, I just knew it was prescription drugs. It might have been entirely accidental or it might have been from abuse. Uh, but I, I, anyway, the point being, uh, people still certainly die in, in pretty large numbers, unfortunately, from prescription drugs. But the spike, the big spike in deaths we've seen over the last five or six years comes from fentanyl, which is almost entirely illegally obtained and, and in many cases even illegally uh, created fentanyl and heroin. So you've had a pretty consistent number of opioid uh, or um, prescription drug overdoses in the last five or six years. It's the illegal stuff. And there's a complicated relationship between how opioids in the prescription drug market because of a, and, and this is all, a lot of this is covered in Dreamland. I've, there are other articles, other places you can read on it that are really good. But pain management through the 90s got this whole makeover where people started prescribing, including first-line 
medical professionals, uh, primary care doctors, were told that not only should they prescribe opioids because they were very unlikely to be addictive, but they were under an obligation to and to treat pain as one of the you know initial markers of health that they look for when you first go into an office. Now, of course, unlike blood pressure, pain is not objective, what kind of pain you're in. So there was this en- enormous explosion of uh, prescription drug usage from opioid uh, opioid derived or opioid drugs, um, oxycontin, the most famous, which contains oxycodone, and, and and they used to give people really big doses. I mean, doctors would prescribe really big doses of of uh, oxy oxycontin on a daily basis for people. Um, but there are others as well um, that I've been learning learning more about uh, recently. Uh, Vicodin, Percocet. Uh, there are a few others that I'm actually blanking on right now that are that are pretty widely prescribed. But the uh, the big spike has been from fentanyl, and which is incredibly powerful, potent, very very dangerous, and heroin. And the heroin, the heroin explosion in this country comes uh, hand hand in glove with illegal alien population in uh, in this country from Mexico and Central America, uh, predominantly from Mexico. Now it's interesting. I've had this discussion with people recently, and they say, "Isn't it so unfair?" And I think this is important for all of us to keep in mind as we discuss this, because I'll speak to you very honestly about the problems of illegal immigration, the problems of, of terrorism. And it, there, it reminds me, that there's a crossover here, right? Let's say 1% of the illegal immigrant population in this country is involved in the drug trade. That's, by the way, I, I can't even say that's a wild guess. I'm just making up that number because it's easy. Uh, it might be considerably less than that. It might be considerably more. But let's say 1% of the illegal immigrant population is involved in the drug trade in some capacity, transporting, selling, whatever. Um, that would be like saying within the uh, Islamic population of this country, what what percentage are actual radicals? And if you said less than 1%, I think that would be a fair a fair estimate. But the problem is that it, it, you, can, you can still have a massive problem, even if only 1% of the illegal alien population is importing heroin from Sinaloa in Mexico, from Nayarit, and from other parts of the Mexican highlands that can easily grow poppy, can easily grow poppy flowers. So to say that it's unfair, that's true. It's unfair to either 99% of the population that isn't involved, but that doesn't mean you don't have a huge problem and it isn't contained within a certain group of people. Uh, and this is one of the problems, this is one of the big challenges of, of uh, public policy discussion that involves uh, national security issues, but also sensitive issues that affect people in their day-to-day lives and how they feel they're treated. So uh, opioids, I find this topic fascinating on a whole bunch of, of levels, and it's something we'll continue to talk about here in the hut. I, I am apologizing right now because I just I realize I've gone a little bit uh, over. And Oh, wait, wait, one more here from Lauren. Uh, she writes, Buck, I just realized you're in SoulCal. Uh, if you and Miss Molly ever want surf lessons, you know who to ask. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. I wanted to end on a happy note, and Lauren gave us a happy note there. Uh, sure. If I can ever get the time and the inclination to get up on a surfboard, if Miss Molly feels like she's up for it, we'll come down and check it out. Uh, she's out here doing some work too. So we're actually simultaneously in Los Angeles area. Um, with that, my friends, I got to close up the hut, uh, very much enjoying my time with you as always, uh, out here in Los Angeles. I will be here every day. And then Thursday actually in San Diego, but I'll be here every day this week until then. So please send me your thoughts, uh, send me your recommendations for the best places to do fun stuff in L.A. And uh, until next time, my friends, shields high.